Hi, this is Cam Smith, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Eat It, a weekly radio show about food and drink broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Sunday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website. If you've ever had a drink at the Gin Palace, oh yeah, or any of the other places which we'll get into a little bit later, um, you will know that that place was special. And um, the person who was the instigator, the brainchild, the the driving force, the uncompromising <laughs> bastard that was Vernon Chalker. He was uncompromising. He was always pushing people to do better and um, he's left us too early and I thought it might be a good idea because we can't come together for funerals. This is one of the, the, the terrible things about these times, that we can't have ritual, we can't mourn properly. So today we're going to try to address that in our little old community way, your station in isolation here in downtown East Brunswick, uh, what we're going to do is at the end of today's show, I've got uh, we've got this little esky bag, don't we, Kent? We do. In we there, do. I have it's looking very inviting. Plymouth gin. I have a bottle of Nolipois. Very um, Anyway, we're going to make a drink at the end. Um, so, for those that haven't heard what we're going to do, um, if you would like, if you knew Vernon, if you've ever been to Gin Palace, get yourself a glass ready. Doesn't have to be booze. Although Vernon would be horrified, um, and at the end of the show, uh, we're going to get uh, one of Vernon's uh, great loves, um, co-creators, we could say, uh, Madame Brussels, Miss Pearls, is going to lead a toast at the end of it. Um, so anyway, we're going to talk about the man. This is what we intend to do with all you guys today. But there's more to that than just mourning someone who is great and good. Um, we thought it might be a good idea to talk about uh, a dish that has pretty much taken over the world. And what we're talking about, of course, is southern fried chicken. Southern fried chicken. And I couldn't help but go for that accent. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to talk to uh, Aaron Turner in a little while. He of the Hot Chicken Project in Geelong. Um, you're a bit of a lover of fried chicken, are you not, Ken? Yeah, I not every day food. <laughs> it's, it's, it's special occasion <laughs> it can't food. Can't be every day food. <laughs> yeah, that's right. But we'll yeah, all yeah. die. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but you're right. You can't um, can't blink for seeing a, a chicken place at the moment. Yeah, and some are better than others. Yeah, and um, but that's right. And that's the point to make, isn't it? This, you know, this is uh, the the thing. Um, Aaron had an incredible epiphany, and we might talk about um, that in a little while when we get him on the phone. Um, but, uh, yeah, his place – actually, there's a few places that he's got. I think there's one up in – is it Lawn or Anglesey? Anyway, Aaron's the man we're going to talk to. We'll find out. He knows. Uh, and we're going to – and also, I thought – I actually said to you, Kent, that, <laughs> you know, in a weird way – the people of the southern states of America are almost Japanese. And why was that? Because of the attention to detail, that striving for perfection, the crumb and the... Relentless and the, honing yeah, and honing. The crumb and the spicing of the uh, the batter and, yeah, 
What? Because that's the Japanese ethos. In if you want to go to Japanese food, is all about perfection, perfection and consistency. Consistent so you know exactly. perfection. <laughs> Sorry, yeah, <laughs> Cam. <laughs> I'm stubborn. Um, yeah, yeah. That 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 pursuit of perfection applies to getting the right crumb and the seasoning mix. Uh, just, yeah. just so. Whether whether it's the perfect piece of uh, torre no karagi. Ah, yes. Whether it is the perfect peach that has come from, um, you know, a tree that is perfectly ripened in front of you, or even if it is the most perfect okonomiyaki. Oh, now, now you're talking food. Now you I love okonomiyaki. I was, I've been doing a bit of okonomiyaki, and um, I said, Kent, you seem to know your way a little bit around the okonomiyaki, and you said, I am. Go on. No, what did I say? You said you were sort of – I don't know if it was the king of Okonomiyaki. Oh, oh, no, it, was, I, I, it was a title though, was I, it not? I, emperor? Sure. <laughs> I don't know. What is, okay, for those that haven't heard, let's, let's just have a quick little um, yep. chat. Okonomiyaki, what is it? Okonomiyaki. Well, Okonomi in o- – How am I saying it right? Okonomi. Oh, no, you're right, yeah. No, Okonomi in, um, in Japanese roughly translates to anything you want. Yeah. And yaki. As you like it, fried. Fried, yep. So anything you want fried, and that kind of sums it up as a dish, but mostly it's cabbage and pork and, um, you know, so to create the pancake. It's basically a Japanese pancake. Yeah. Um, a uh, pata. You can see it around a lot, but just like you were saying about fried chicken, the quality varies a huge amount. Uh-huh. There's a really dodgy place – at um, Spencer Street Station, Southern Cross Station, and it's got the saddest looking Okonomiyaki. Same, same as Flinders Street. Yeah. Flinders Street at the front, they're, they're just, there's, there's, there ain't nothing but cabbage in those things, I think. It's not typically a takeaway food. It's, nah. a, fast, it's a relatively fast food, but yeah. yeah, not a takeaway food. Yeah, no, I've been, I've been having a go, and I've been actually putting prawns in mine. Yeah, seafood. That, that is yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, and actually, I've been uh, doing that on. There's a picture of that on my Instagram. If you want to have a check out that out, Cam Smith, eat it. And also, um, when product development teams go rogue, would be the best <laughs> way to describe this. Um, I was in a 7 Eleven a few days ago, and next to the cash register, um, you know, where they've got the, the big suggestive sell stuff, you know, to just try and the eyes, maybe maybe we can get rid of this stuff. A packet of Smith potato chips in... So far, so good. Yeah, and in and, and this beautiful magenta, like yeah, this glorious purple. Oh, nice. Yeah, looking good. Nice, it's yeah. like royal yeah, Smith yeah. chips. Caught your eye. I, I went, ew, these look interesting. I wonder what flavour these are. And I'm looking and I'm going, no. No, that can't be right. Look again, and it was a lamington on the front of it. And yeah, there they were, Smith's lamington flavored potato chips. Can you uh, imagine being at that meeting? Well, this is what I put on my Instagram for this one. I said, "Okay, uh, Meadow, uh, memo to product development team. Okay, which one of you put the magic mushrooms in the coffee?" <laughs> Um, because that's yeah. the only way that I can think that maybe some um, oh, the ergot derivative, you know, the the rye, the mother corn, some of the right. ate. There was, there was some sort of hallucinogenics involved. Lamington chips. Yeah, and someone uh, commented and said, "Did you try them, Cam?" Yeah, did you? No, <laughs> there's some things that are just better left. So what were they like? Desiccated coconut on them or something, and like some that. sort of chocolate, chocolate flavour. Cho- oh man! Anyway, it's, it just went. 
Nah. Food goes bad. Uh, we've got a really big show. It's important stuff we need to cover. I just thought I'd mention that. Um, maybe it's valid. I don't think it is. Let's have a chat to someone who uh, has been obsessed with a product, as a lot of people in the southern states of the US have been, and now more and more and more different nationalities are. Um, speaking of southern fried chicken, we're speaking to Aaron Turner from the Hot Chicken Project. He's on the phone, I hope. Aaron, are you there? Hey, mate, how are you? Oh, good. It would have been falling a bit flat if we wasn't there. <laughs> hey, buddy, how you doing? Yeah, I'm really well. I'm really well. How are you? Uh, real Look, real good, real good. That's good. Um, I First of all, what I want to do is just congratulate you on this awesome book. It's, <laughs> Thank you. It's called The Hot Chicken Project. Um, the pictures in it are magnificent. The grade is fantastic. Um, there's parts of your writing that sort of goes into sort of almost this... Um, I don't know, a little bit of Bukowski, in a way? <laughs> it's over-generous. <laughs> <laughs> you know, a bit of fear and loathing um, sort of feel about it too. But Yeah, I mean, look, it's it sort of, you know, it was definitely written in that vein. It was, um, you know, the whole idea came up, obviously, living there for a while and just being completely obsessed with hot chicken. And it was kind of this um, take of, you know, a road trip, um discovering it for the first time but there was a lot of there's a lot of characters in this book that um you know have passed away and aren't with us anymore so it was kind of that hallucination that <laughs> hot food and chili can give you and yes. almost having a conversation with them so you're not too far off the mark and it, and it is it's sort of we, we might speak of um some of those people and it almost feels like the Holy Trinity, shall we say? Uh, we might we might talk about them in in a little bit, but um, you're right. Hot chicken is such a visceral experience for all the senses, and there's epiphanies that have happened. Um, my epiphany happened uh, where where have I got it? I think I wrote it down. November 16, 2018, two thirty, and it was at your joint in Geelong. Uh, which we might talk a, a little bit about. But for you, July 14th, 2013, 7.32, Hattie That's Beams. Right. Tell us about it. Well, I'd, sort of, I'd, I'd moved to Nashville just um, kind of by mis- mistake, you know. I was on my way to... Um, <laughs> you moved to, to Nashville by mistake? <laughs> Oops. Oops, how did I end up here? <laughs> wow, there's a lot of country music happening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, when I got, I was on my way to New York, and I'd stopped just to visit a friend, and um, the, the, the city quickly grabbed a hold, and I discovered hot chicken, and went from there. What was it about Nashville that that grabbed you? Well, that's really hard to pinpoint, but it's um the bars, you know, a, the booze, the culture. Well, I'm a big music fan, and it just felt really homely, you know, with the mm. people and the environment that I guess such a creative city has naturally from those people. And it was just, it was very addictive at the time and, and very um, authentic and authentic. Yeah, yeah it, it screams of, um, it screams of that. Although, you know, there's, there's a lot of issues that they uh, complain about with music city and, you know, the corporate side of uh, music, but um, it's everywhere yeah, it was, though, it, isn't it? it just felt very nourishing as, as music can be. So yeah, I was, I was really 
drawn to that, I guess. So the music was there of um, the thing that sort of siren-like called you, but uh, the thing that really, really got you was uh, was the thing about obsession and salvation. And I, I, I love this about hot chicken because there's uh, there's a quote here that says, "Hot chicken ain't nothing but the truth. There's nowhere to hide, is there?" Uh, so, I mean, it's like anything, too. You know, when you have a singular vision, you know, with food, there often isn't anywhere to hide, you know. It's um, it's either right or it's not. Yeah, um, it's, it's... Yeah. And, you know, the I just... When <laughs> I can get into these, um, these trances where there's no room for anything else other than what's caught my attention. So that certainly woke me up from a slumber, so to speak. Because, you know, I can... Close my eyes and visualize the first bite I ever took. You know, I could almost, I could almost draw it, which is, you know, happened to me before with cooking. Um, I can draw it, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it happens to me at times, and you know, um, for many years I can't think of anything else. <laughs> so that has definitely been one of them. So, Aaron, just a, a quick um, question. Um, the U.S. Were you? What is your? Um, uh, are you American? I'm, I'm trying to work it out because you don't sound American, but you spent a lot of time no. there. No, I'm not American. I, I've um, just travelled there. Um, you know, I've had a lot of American friends uh, in the past. Uh, yeah. I just travelled there, and it's sort of you know, it's a place that um, it sort of strangely feels foreign enough to be home. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, you know, I was going through a bit of a rough patch um, in my life when I decided to pack up and leave, and I, was, I just got myself a visa, as you could back then. Yes. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I took off just on an adventure to see what I could find. So, so this, this was sort of a, a sabbatical for you, wasn't it? Yeah, it was. It's sort of, you know, at a point where I, I thought I was done with um, cooking and, you know, being a chef and everything that comes with that sort of stuff, mm. owning restaurants and yeah. kind of... Um, Wishing I was good enough to be a musician, but I'm not. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so I think we're, we're both Kent and I are nodding at each other in that one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Was, I did, like I said, I didn't intend to find a whole new path um, when I went to Nashville, but I'm certainly glad I did, and it was very sort of. And they say this a lot about the South and the food and, and um, everything that encompasses it, but it was it was very healing in a strange way that, you you know, it's hard to put a, like your finger on it. But it, it just felt, it's, you know, and it's everything. It's the weather, it's the food, it's the people, it's the environment. It's the know. beer. And, you know, of course, the beer does help. Yeah. Can we talk a little bit about Prince's Hot Chicken Shack? Sure. The temple. And, um, and a great anecdote about how this dish came to be with a woman called Girlfriend X. Yeah, it's just sort of a bit of a folk, you know, a bit of, bit of folklore surrounding it. Nobody can really uh, say if it's true or or not. But Damn that's good story, story, though. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. Um, never let the truth get in the way of a good yarn, I think. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, the family can't confirm it nor deny it, but, you know, it's a great story that um, he came home drunk and quite a womaniser, Thornton Prince. And Thornton to Prince. sort of. He had to st stitch him up. His girlfriend at the time um, doused his favourite dish that he demanded she cook, which was um, skillet fried chicken. 
in some cayenne chili that she had growing out the back, but it backfired because he absolutely loved it. And um, the story goes from there. He had he, he got her to recreate the dish for his brothers and all his boys, and they decided that everyone needed to have this and opened the first shack. Wow. So she was she was actually trying to... She was trying to hurt him. <laughs> she was trying to teach him a lesson, yeah. yeah. So. <laughs> and, he, and he just went, whoa. This it's backfired majorly, yeah. Yeah, this is, this is bloody awesome. So um, you've, you've been to this place, Prince's Hot Chicken? Yeah, the original um, shack, had, you know, it's moved uh, a couple of times, but this one's been out in the um, suburbs for a few decades now. Uh, and unfortunately, a few years ago, the, it caught fire. Somebody ran into the um, strip mall in their car oh. and sort of burnt it down. So it's been closed uh, ever since. And now, because of how popular and how big Hot Chicken has gotten, and especially around Prince's, mm. um, they're going to be moving downtown into a big complex. So sort of the original shack is, uh, has gone. But, you know, that's progress. You know, it's... It's kind of weird in a, in a way. What are your thoughts in the fact that fried chicken has conquered the world and it sort of really, really started in its, in its way from a pocket of the United States? Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a really hard thing to, um, to pinpoint why it you know, resonates so much around the world. And I guess nearly every cuisine has a type of fried chicken, you know, from Southeast Asia through to... You think of the Japanese with tore no karage, Korean yeah. fried chicken. Did, and, which, and which came first? Did it, is Southern fried chicken came before KFC, as in Korean fried chicken? Well, the, uh, well I would say so, yes. I'm not an expert on that one. But... Okay, don't, don't quote you, but uh, gut, feeling, <laughs> gut feeling. Yeah, that's okay. Sounds like but the, the great thing about the great thing about fried chicken is you know it's got such a mystique around it. Every recipe is secret. Every um, someone, everyone has their twist on it. Every family has their twist on it, and it's you know quite noticeable with these little twists. So, um, like that, that to me is quite an addictive pursuit. Trying to eat and figure out those little those little things, and the parallel stories that you know arguably the most commercial of them all KFC has with. Um, Nashville, especially, and the, their style is, you know, it's quite remarkable. They both um, talk of a stolen recipe from um, women in their lives. Yes. Uh, yes. And they're when you... caves. Go ahead. Yep. Um, they're both staunch in keeping their secret and their recipe uh, to a point, you know. Um, the colonel wouldn't obviously tell anybody his recipe, and Thornton, uh, well, sorry, Bolton Polk, who's um, Thornton's original cook, when he opened up, he would let nobody else prepare his chicken because he'd just do it right. So, you know, that's really interesting to me, you know, this single-minded vision of how something that is a fairly simple preparation is, is not quite simple. Mm. But, yeah, and we were getting to that whole thing. I might just repeat it, the fact that it is almost like a Japanese ethos, just the relentless honing and honing and perfecting recipes until you can't improve it anymore. Yeah, that singular sort of ingredient Mm. vision, which is, yeah. Like I said, as as a cook, is something that's really attractive to me. Yeah, yeah. 
And, um, and you know, we're talking about uh, Colonel Saunders. We sort of, you know, um, uh, acknowledged him as, as, as one of the first. And he ended up suing his business partners because, what would he say? They're, they're ruining my damn birds. Yeah, he wasn't he wasn't too impressed there in the end, you know. I mean, he's a he's another guy with a lot of um, mystery around him as well, you know, fact from fiction. Yes, you know, it's hard, it's I think I say it in the book. It's hard to find any truth in him. Yes, um, but that in itself is you know also pretty remarkable that you know this brand has grown out of this mystique and essentially a grumpy old man in the end. Yeah, he sounds um, like an old curmudgeon because they took. His uh, recipe, and like you said, they bastardized it, you know. They stripped it so far away from what he intended and wanted it to be that he got to a point where he did try and sue them for, you know, messing it up on him. So, you know, that that tells me a lot about someone who, whether the recipe was stolen or not, but, you know, someone who really cares about um, what, what he's doing. Well, he gave a damn, and um, and it comes back to that whole thing that hot chicken ain't nothing but the truth, and there's nowhere to hide. Um, but another interesting thing you said um, was that it can't be fried chicken unless it's got a bone in it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's right. Um, it's just it's 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 just another level of. Um What's where the flavour is? Enjoyment, yeah. It's you know, it turns it into that gelatinous, sticky, mm. stickiness that um, pieces, boneless pieces just don't have. Well, it's the same thing that if you eat a whole fish, it's going to be a, a lot different experience than if you just have a little old fillet. You just don't, yeah. you just don't get um, the sort of flavours. Um, this book is bloody awesome. It's um, uh, published by Hardy Grant. It is around. I recommend it uh, to people. Um, if someone was going to try and cook their own hot chicken, what would be your advice to them? Um, read the make book. sure you yeah, read the book, buy yeah. the book. <laughs> um, it's it's all about preparation and time. Yeah, yeah, and, and not trying to skip a step and not trying to um, work outside the guidelines that I guess I've put in the book, uh, and that is having the right oil. And I, I, I do explain. It. In uh, in the book, why? Uh, and just, I guess it seems like such a simple thing, but just not skimping on the process. It's so easy to get wrong. Yeah, because when so it goes wrong, wrong, it goes wrong. Now, um, uh, Hot Chicken Project is in Little Mallop Street in Geelong. Uh, where right. where yep. else can we find you? Uh, in the summer months, we're down in Anglesey. Yep. Um, other than that, we've just got the two. We like to um, keep it as controlled as possible. And you've got another place that's coming on. Um, you sh- you sent me a picture, uh, tacos and liquor, which uh, seem to be good little bedfellows. What's yeah, it? It seemed, I seem to have bad timing at the moment, release the book and <laughs> yes. almost open a restaurant well, <laughs> amid uh, a pandemic. I'm, I'm here to help with the book anyway. <laughs> yeah. I don't know if I'm going to help with the restaurant. Yeah, well, look, we've, we just, um, we've got this little... Um, Little shop that we're just going to do some street tacos out of. Uh, it's ready to go. Where uh, is it? We're just waiting. It's uh, across the road from the Hot Chicken Project oh, on Little Mallop Street. Uh, yeah, so we're just waiting and it's ready to go when we're allowed to get back into it. Well, if ever you want to see that um, Geelong's uh, become a bit of a serious food place, wander down Little Mallop Street. It is just bloody awesome. And I will never forget 
that chicken epiphany because I'm I'm in that same way. I can I've freeze framed it. It's locked yeah. in my mind. And um, thank you for that experience, Aaron. My pleasure. And thank you for the book too. Look forward to speaking with you again. Um, have you? Did you know Vernon Chalker? Uh, I did. Yes. Is there anything you wanted to just mention about him before we go into a song and do our proper tribute? I was just, I think, you know, he, he was someone that changed the game long before, you know, the celebrity of it all yeah. kicked in. And, you know, he's a man of um, integrity in, in what he did and single focus as well. So, you know, all that sort of, it's not lost on me at all what he's uh, contributed to our, our society. It's that same thing, isn't it? Uncompromising. A relentless yeah. search for perfection. We're going to miss him. Um, thanks for chatting, Aaron. Look forward to chatting with you again, hopefully when this is all over and you've got lots of bums on seats and people enjoying your great food. Thanks, Nate. I appreciate it. Pleasure. The book is called The Hot Chicken Project. It's uh, published by Hardy Grant. Great photos. Some really good writing in there. It gets a bit dark, too. Not just dark meat. This is a tribute to who we now have to say is the late Vernon Chalker, um, a man who changed the way we think about bars, the way we think about service. I'm not going to talk too much because there's a lot of other people that are closer to Vernon who should be allowed to speak. The first one I would like to bring to the microphones is Madame Brussels. Miss Pearls, a very good afternoon to you, Pearls. I'm sorry Hi. that we have to uh, to talk about this in the way, yeah. but yeah. here we are. Hi. Hi, Cam. Hi, Ken. <laughs> uh, the strangest thing is the only signal I can get is in my bedroom. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> so I'm in the boudoir where oh. I can get turned on and have a slight reception. <laughs> Oh, lovely, lovely, and you've got a uh, you've got a drink that's going to be uh, ready to go because, um, as we said at the beginning of this, um, we need ritual in our lives. We can't go to yeah. the funeral, um, and there's a whole bunch of bartenders and patrons and people that have uh, drunk many, many drinks at Gin Palace, and we need to have a drink, and we're going to make a drink in a little while. Yeah, I guess. Um, um your beautiful show, Eat It, today, um, and the tribute is about the hospitality part of Vernon's family. But um, I would first like like to um, acknowledge Vernon's family. Yeah. He um, completely adored them, and, and I stuffed up his age. Okay, he's 56, <laughs> but I'm so sorry about that, but... In retrospect, I think he's a bit ageless, right? Yeah, and I think I think he would have appreciated, darling. You, you brought down a year, and and fifty five is much nicer, anyway. Thank you, thank you, darling. Now, how? Did, first of all, okay, let's um, acknowledge the family. So, um, did you want to mention any of them by name? And and uh, uh, look, his mother Estelle and father Bidja, Tony. Um, his um, two sisters um, and his brother, and his. Aunties, uh, his cousins, his goddaughters, uh, <laughs> a very big, beautiful family that he absolutely adored, and um, I feel for them right now. But uh, I, I'd just like to sort of um, talk about the friends and what's me, 
if that's okay. Well, yeah, I suppose this is the thing um, that maybe some people, there's probably not a lot, but there are probably some who uh, don't know you and um, yeah. um, and don't know how you got to meet this great man. How did, how did you guys get thrown together? I'll get to that in a minute, Cam. Okay. But, um, I, I've known Vern uh, for about 30 years. I first met him at the Malt House. Um, so I'll get down the line a little bit in a minute. But I, I guess every, uh, Vernon was um, everyone's best friend. Mm-hmm. Because he saw everyone's strength and it was an incredible skill. Um, he pushed people's boundaries and then transformed their ideas. Um, but for me, we enriched each other's lives and he gave me confidence. Um, Vern understood me when most people couldn't or wouldn't. <laughs> so he actually empowered me. I say me, but I actually applying this to everyone he had a friendship with, and especially with people he worked with. Um, that was Vernon's very special gift um, to make every staff member important. Start like staff as a dishy and end up the owner. <laughs> 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 so I remember him calling me 14 and a half years ago and in his gorgeous voice, darling, I need a madam. I always <laughs> wanted to work with you. <laughs> and then that's when the professional magic happened to me. He kind of stored me away and trotted me out at the right opportunity. Um and his timing was impeccable, like, and the rest of that period till now is history. We became really close confidants, shared a few boyfriends. <laughs> I know, right? Travelled uh-huh. extensively and basically often cried on each other's shoulder. Um, it was a true friendship. You know, through all the good and all the bad. Yeah, in in a way, you know, you two guys complimented each other. I really, I really do think that. And and I sort of see saw him as a person with, I don't know, a streaming hyper conscious mind. He was just always thinking, and and maybe. And and maybe that's why he sort of, you know, he enjoyed a drink so much because maybe that just quietened it a, a little bit. But I think maybe his other incredible, his real superpower uh, was his ability to hold on to a martini glass and not let any drink or liquid spill, no matter what conscious state he was in. Yeah. Because Yost was telling me, Yost uh, Baker, who, 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 hello Yost, if you're listening, uh, one of the things he did say was that in all the years that he did the flowers for him, which was years and years and years, he was never happy. <laughs> and he always pushed him to do more. And and this was yeah. this was one of the, the great, great strengths of him. Yes, yes. <laughs> um, I think, um, Pearls, we might um, move along if that's okay. We're going to come back to you because I'm going to make a, a martini in a little while. And... Uh, and and we'll have. Is there anything you just want to say before um, we we move on? Um, gee whiz. Um, if he was here right now, I'd say to him, "We weathered so much 
and you know how much we love each other. But I know you love the entire world and all of its gifts, and you tasted them all, mate, my darling. But I do know that you have a very close business partner waiting to speak, Mr. Yes. Ben Lazar. Yeah. And I'm I'm really looking forward to hearing hearing Ben. All right, Pearls. We're going to be back with you for a, a bit of a toast later on. But uh, let's move on to Ben Luz, um, Operations Manager, Gin Palace. At least that's what we sort of said we'd, we'd call you. Ben, <laughs> hello, mate. How are you doing? Hi, Cam. Great. Thank you. Well, you just heard from um, Pearls. I mean, um, there's two people that were certainly almost joined at the hip, a couple um, kindred spirits, but... Mm-hmm. You have had an uh, an amazing working relationship with this man. Yeah, I, I have. And um, before I get into that, firstly, could I just say thank you so much, Cam and Triple R, for allowing us to uh, grieve. Um, we're an avenue to grieve because uh, it's quite hard to feel at the moment, especially this- for someone who had... Um, was so amazing and had such a broad network. So, yeah, thank you first, Cam. This is um, uh, this is a great honour for me, and it's also one of the things where um, Kent and I were talking about community radio comes mm. to the fore. So, no worries, mate. We're here for you. Tell really us, appreciate it. No, thank tell you. us a bit about Vernon and your experiences with him. <laughs> and maybe a naughty anecdote. I, I, I probably can't talk about 99% of it <laughs> on community radio, unfortunately. Yes. But, um, look, uh, I, I knew Vernon before um, I started working at Jim Palace. Um, he employed me back in 2001. Um, but I, I knew Jim Palace well. I was, I was drinking there quite regularly and knew Vernon. But, um, yeah, I just remember him offering me a job there and I just leapt at it and we had a very long interview where he did all the talking. Yes. <laughs> and, um, and I think I, I think I just said thank you at the end. That was probably all I said. But, so um, what he yeah, sort look, of interviewed at you. He interviewed anyone that's been interviewed by Vernon and they know. Look, and it was really about him setting the tone of his vision um, from day one and really indoctrinating everybody in and, you know, just, just to be able to understand the world you know, that you're stepping into. And it really felt like a like a, a different world that I was stepping into, you know, with, with you know, movie stars and, um, you know, sports stars. And it was like Studio 54, you know, the early 2000s for me. Like, um, so, you yeah, know, I, I had a really close working relationship with him. And like Pearl said, um, you know, he, he had time for everyone. I remember when I first started there, he, he was talking to the bar back for two hours, you know, and I'd just come from this big organisation. Mm. I just thought, wow, this is a man who is, you know, at the top of his game and he's just so generous with his time that he would just talk to anyone and engage with them with the fervour that he would with, this, you know, with the movie star. He would talk to anybody, yeah. you know, with that yeah. engagement. So, yeah, look, I mean, I worked with, uh, with him on and off for 20 years. Um, um, I, he called me up when I was in London and said, you know, do you want to come back? and open up this bar that Honky Tonks at the time was about to turn into this one big bar, nightclub thing. And I came back and that sort of fell through. So um, he said, how about, you know, Madame Brussels that had just opened and, um, you know, I'd known Pearls for a long time. I got to work alongside her, which was amazing, and Vernon, you know, for years. And then and then um, he offered me, you know, partnership at Gin Palace. And, and so I jumped at that and, and we worked, you know, right up until the end where we worked together. So, yeah. Very lucky and um, and um, very thankful. 
It's, um, you know, I, I was reading somewhere uh, that... I don't know. Well, first of all, Gin Palace. You know, the mm. it, it was. It's like an opulent old theatre, and as someone mm. said, it, it could easily be the scene from an F. Scott Fitzgerald novel. Um, but uh, you know, one of the thing anybody was welcome to this place. You know, it was mm. never stuffy, and and in no. a way, someone said, "Look, Vernon would be more interested to talk to a skateboarder than than a yeah. businessman." You know. <laughs> Classic story of um, yeah the four businessmen sitting up on three three for anyone that ever worked at Gin Palace, and um, there was four businessmen up there in their you know double breasted suits drinking bourbon and cokes, and a, a, a young guy came in on his skateboard, and I think Alan Turner was working at the time, and he, he put his skateboard up against the bar and ordered a martini, and, and you know Vernon was like, that's the guy we want to serve, you know the, the, the person that drinks right, not the person that looks right, you know, and um, and yeah, that was the great thing, you know. His generosity of heart and spirit really was the same with Gin Palace. You know, everyone was welcome. There was no, there was no door policy. You know, as long as you know, as long as you were happy, you know, you could stay and have a drink until three a.m. So sometimes later, sometimes <laughs> later. And the other great thing that was, he had this great ability to throw people together. He knew mm. to bring people together, and and one of them was, of course. Um, maybe you might want to quickly talk about Sean and how he made an introduction to Sean, which changed his life. Uh, Sean Byrne? Uh, indeed. Yeah, look, I mean, the great thing about Vernon is to, you know, what I, what I learned from him about building teams is that you don't just put a bunch of like-minded people together. You know, um, one of the great things about his team building was he took people from all walks of life and threw them into a small team and it just seemed to work, you know, where you might not have ever been friends outside of those those four walls, but because he threw you together and you worked in such an amazing environment, you you become you become friends. And you know, like there was always the you know people coming out of left field. And Vernon, you know, like Sean Burns started there. Um, I can't remember what year it was now, but it would have been um, 2010 maybe. Or um, and you know, Sean at the time was starting to tinker around with you know making bitters and making making things in the bar because he just couldn't buy those things back he then. He was a geek. Um, so we had to make them. <laughs> yeah, he was a geek. You know, he was and, a bar geek. Just, he was a bar geek and he, and he tinkered with it and Vernon, you know, Vernon, you know, in, you know, saw that talent and really cultivated it and put him together with Gilles Lapalou. And I remember we went up to, um, went up to the winery and, you know, we're talking about vermouth and Gilles like, you know, that's Wormwood, that's, you know, all the ingredients for vermouth were there, and Sean really just, you know, <laughs> was one of those people that, you know, yes. and this is the testament to Vernon, you know, he, he cultivates these people, he sees their passion, he really, like, helps them grow, and he's done that with many people, and Sean's one of those people, you know, Sean's making amazing vermouth, he's making marionette liqueurs now, you know, um, I'm sure he's gonna, he's got a few other things on the back burner, but, you know, at its core, you know, Vernon, Vernon really helped Sean, and, and, and that's a you know, I think it lives on with the products and the bars that have, have sprung up because of him. Because we think about um, one of the things that is a great legacy to a person is the diaspora, the people that mm. have gone on with more. Ben, mm. we're going to have to move on because time is getting away with us. Uh, we're going to move on to Sebastian Rayborn now. Sebastian Rayborn, uh, a person that uh, came back from London and said, you know, uh, the only place I really want to work is a gin palace and um, Sebastian I'm going to let you get right into it because time is getting away from us 
Thanks, Cam. Uh, when, you know, Dervler and I opened 1806, we really followed Vernon's playbook and his obsession that the customer and the customer experience, you know, had to be number one in the vision. But I reached out and there's a lot of old friends of Vernon's who have said a few stories that they'd like to uh, put out there. So Marcus Nielsen met Vernon in 1983 when, when Vernon was living in the Mission to Seaman on Flinders Street and they used to party in the chapel there and they then moved in together to a house with Dorothy um, Kovovich and Vernon worked at Clichy under Sigmund Jorgsen who was oh, a, a huge influence yes that's right um, and at the time Marcus was working in private catering and introduced Vernon to, to Jan Rogers and to Louis Lecce uh, who was a socialite caterer that people went to and they wanted exceptional creative food and Vernon was the front of house for that so during that time they'd work really long hours they'd do private parties uh, get paid in cash and spend their earnings on a six hour lunch at Fanny's or dinner at Glow Glow's <laughs> And their house became a locale for afternoon parties with Vernon's experimental cocktails and Marcus's light pear souffles. Wow. And obviously before Gin Palace, Vernon went on to create Acme Catering with Susan Devine and Andrew Watkins and Marcus created Food and Desire. They've remained friends throughout and will miss him immensely. Joe Duff reached out and wanted to say that it, She's known Vernon for a long time, but it was 2006 when she was finishing her MBA that Vernon changed the course of her career and he called her and said, darling, I've just signed a lease for a new business and I need your help. Come and have a martini with me at Gin Palace and we can discuss the details. And Jo wasn't sure if she was more excited about the opportunity of sharing a martini with the mad, crazy, unbelievably inspiring human. And six weeks later, Madame Brussels opened and Jo worked full-time and Vernon always said that it was fabulous that MBA stood for my bloody assistant. <laughs> and Joe worked with him for eight and a half years full of challenges, tears, crazy adventures and epic staff parties. She said she learnt a lot and Vernon knew how to bring teams together. She's so grateful for the deep, lifelong friendships that she forged working with him in the Chalker Empire. It was her absolute favourite job ever. There will never be another one like it, just like there will never be another year. Thank you for trusting and giving me the opportunity to thrive and flourish and grow your business. The sky is now your eternal martini. And Andrew Nilsson worked with Vernon in the early 90s, working at Acme Catering and Malthouse. And uh, he had the memorable experience of sharing Level 3 Curtain House with Vernon, Barry Kosky and Zed. And Andrew is a token straight guy and otherwise bohemian rhapsody. <laughs> And he says that those brief years have given him an indelible memory of a life fully lived from the pulsating cum parties, entry allowed midnight to 1am only, and other divinely chaotic evenings to the quieter domestic pleasures of good conversation and shopping trips to the local 7-Eleven. Uh, Evan Milne uh, relates he'd been in Tokyo about a year and was heading home but popping to New York on the way back, sort of broke and disillusioned. And he and Vernon had been friends, and Vernon rang him a week before he was departing Tokyo and said, look, I'm, I'm coming through on my way to New York. You know, let's catch up. And so uh, Devin joined him in New York for the premiere of Lord of the Rings with David Wenham and over several surreal days, enjoyed martinis, yes. meals, the best of bars, clubs, limousines and restaurants, and then back to the Gin Palace and that week was one of the highlights of his 20s, filled with so much laughter and delight in life's excess, and it helped to write, write his past. 
pass. Later, Evan invited Vernon to host a martini glass at his restaurant where he entertained 30 talky locals. And he says it was by far the most fun and most excessive dinner that they'd ever put on. Vernon held court wow. with a calm and knowing smile as the evening descended into a wonderful chaos. And Evan says that he'll be missed but never forgotten and forever loved. And a few other folks have just coined a few words. Michael Cotter, who created Barnan and uh, um, East of Everything, and says Vernon was such an inspiration to bar owners that by the taking the risks he took, opening some incredible bars, he shaped Melbourne. Uh, long-time industry legend Stacey Fields says one of his fondest memories was bringing his mother to Gin Palace in his early 20s and sipping gin mojitos till they run out of mint. And she always commented on how classy the place was and how thankful she was for the experience and how lovely that man was. And Reg Riddell's uh, is so grateful for Vern taking time to sit with him when he decided to quit Collins Corner, uh, Collins Quarter and find a venue of his own. And he, was, he says that doing everything on his own was very overwhelming. And Vernon helped to keep him focused on the dream and why he loved what he was doing and the things he suggested were a great hope. And what became love and dysfunction, he likes to think, has a little bit of Vern in it. And that, you know, that's a tiny amount of the people who want to remember and say thank you for Vernon for bringing his vision and helping shape Vernon. And, and thanks to you, Cam. Pleasure, Seb. I'm just actually pouring the martinis now. There we are. And I've used Plymouth gin because that was a gin he loved, a gin with uh, a lot of root botanicals, apparently. And as he wanted, as Trish Brew told me, a twist of lemon is just going into one of these. Sebastian... Thank you for that. We're going to move very, very quickly because we don't have a lot of time. We're going to talk to Gerald Diffie, the, uh, the man behind the eponymous Gerald's Bar. Gerald, I'm sorry, mate, we don't have much time, but if you would like, uh, we've just got um, a couple martinis in front of us, but if you wanted to just say a couple quick words about Vernon Chalker. Well, um, thanks for having me on. Uh, Pleasure. I think if, if there's one word that can describe... Vernon, and it's a word that he used a lot himself, and that is the sense of elan, of dynamism <laughs> and enthusiasm yes. and style. And that's how I'll always remember him. So, When did you first meet him, and how did you uh, first meet him? When I first met Vernon, I was working in Brunswick Street, and he had a little workshop on Smith Street where he made ghastly ties and woolen gentlemen's swimming trunks. <laughs> right. Odd. Not something that I would go out of my way to get, but yes. Well, I've got them on now. Oh, good, um, good, good. Good man. So I needed a place to live, and he said, now, Gerald, I've got a lovely uh, bungalow in the back garden with an ensuite. You can live there, and it'll be fabulous, and I'll introduce you to Melbourne. And so we got to the house in Gibbs Street where he lived with Andrea and um, this tall, blonde Teuton and him sort of, sort of twin set in pearls. Yes. And took me out to the garden and, uh, and, um, and um, installed me in the garden shed with the outside toilet. And, and then in a sort of Pygmalion-esque sort of experiment, he then took me around Melbourne and made me dine at the Supper Inn and Tai Tai and and uh, Francois, and we would have lunch at Fanny's and Tansy's and just opened up, and that was him. He was just so enthusiastic for me to actually be a part of that world and, you know, 
I was the gnome in the garden and he was the fairy in the house. And, <laughs> you know. Well, um, here's to it. Um, Gerald, thank you for that. We look forward to when we can come and come back to your bar in Rathdown Street. We're going to come back to Pearl's now because we do have our drinks in our hand. Kent, let's uh, bring these. Pearl's. <laughs> Cheers. Hey. Ah, there it is. There we go. Cheers. And to all the people out there, I hope you are putting your glasses together. Pearls, we've got about three minutes left. Would you like to propose a toast? I would love to propose a toast to a wonderful man who has left an amazing legacy and so much love in Melbourne and the world. I salute you, Mr Chalker. Yeah, and... uh, we, cheers. And so say all of us. Um, cheers. Um, as I said, I've done the right thing here. I've got Plymouth in a glass. I've done an <laughs> in-out of Nolipois, um, and I have a twist of lemon. And because it's radio, I can say to you, Pearls, this glass is so fancy. <laughs> not fancy enough, no, no, of course not. Of course not. It'll never be fancy enough uh, for Vernon. Uh, Vernon, you changed this town for the better. Um, You made us enjoy life. You um, made us understand that life is fleeting and and that life is to be grasped and enjoyed. And and if you're going to be doing anything, just use the very best. Absolutely. Hi, this is Cam Smith, and you've been listening to the podcast of Triple R's Eat It, a weekly radio show about food and drink. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Sunday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website. 